You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three of Henry the Navigator. This episode will wrap up our series on the legendary Portuguese prince. Let's dive right in. Today we will do the following. First, we will talk about the explorations of Henry's captains now that they had reached sub-Saharan Africa. Second, we will go through some of the important naval innovations of the era, including the development of the caravel. Third, we will detail some of the discoveries attributed to Henry's captains in the final decade of his life, including the Cape Verde Islands. Fourth, we'll add in a handful of random tidbits about Henry's life that just don't fit into these other buckets. And finally, we'll wrap it all up by talking about the legacy of Prince Henry. Let's roll. So, last time, we left Henry and his captains as they finally got past the Saharan Desert and reached the lands that the Portuguese called Guinea, or Black Africa. This had been a long process that had taken more than a quarter of a century. In doing this, Henry had achieved an immensely important goal, and that was the circumnavigation of the Muslim-controlled Saharan trade caravans. He now had direct access to a new market and the rare goods that came with such a thing. From 1444 to 1446, approximately 40 ships would sail south to this newly opened region under the aegis of Prince Henry, and in doing so, the Portuguese would begin to understand this exotic new world. They saw that this area was very different from the lands along the Sahara Desert section of the coast. There were more permanent villages and ports, and bigger ones. This meant more trade opportunities. Now last time, we talked about how that, up to this point, the Portuguese had not exactly endeared themselves to the local people. Fighting was often the result of any encounter. The Portuguese were usually victorious in any conflict due to their superior weaponry and armor. After winning these fights, they would take anything of value, as well as try and capture important people, who they could then ransom for stuff that they wanted. Again, none of this did anything to make the native people like the Portuguese. But that was going to change, at least to a degree. In the sub-Saharan region, the populations of the natives were larger, and the villages and towns better fortified, and the use of poison arrows and darts were more commonplace. This meant that the outcome of any fight was less of a sure thing. With that in mind, Henry and the Portuguese tweaked their tactics. What they needed was to establish permanent, secure trading posts in the region, and take the time and effort to strike up agreements with the local tribes. The first outpost to be established was on the island of Arguin in the Bay of Arguin in 1445. This was about 320 miles, or 520 kilometers, north of the Senegal River, which is where sub-Saharan Africa begins. 
So the Portuguese would push south, exploring as they went, sometimes getting into fights with the locals, and sometimes trading with them, and sometimes both. Nuno Tristal would reach the Cape Verde Peninsula in 1444, which is the furthest west point of continental Africa. Dakar, today the capital of Senegal, is on the peninsula. Off the coast of the peninsula, the Portuguese would build an outpost on Gori Island around 1450. This will be a key post for European powers for centuries and a major cog in the slave trade. After Cape Verde, the Portuguese would continue south, but the coastline begins to round back towards the east. I want to mention a tactic used by the Portuguese at this time was to bring back with them some of the native peoples they encountered. In Portugal, these natives would learn some Portuguese, get a glimpse of the majesty and wonders of the Europeans, and then be sent back to Africa. There, they would bring gifts for their kings and rulers, and would be able to act as valuable guides and translators, brokering deals between the African tribes and the Portuguese. Some of these natives would come voluntarily with the Portuguese, while others would be taken by force. Either way, it was an effective way to establish and improve relations with the various African tribes. So the Portuguese wanted to trade, and we know what they wanted. Gold, slaves, ivory, spices, just to name a few items. But what about the local peoples? What could the Portuguese offer them? Well, there was always an interest in manufactured goods, knives, axes, that sort of thing. But a couple of the most desired trade goods were horses and textiles. Horses were widely available in Europe. However, the clothing desired by the African tribes was produced by the Moors of North Africa. This would lead to a growth in trade between the Portuguese and the Moorish kingdoms, even though that was technically not supposed to be taking place. But as we have seen, money talks. Now, we mentioned all the stuff that the Portuguese were trading for, but the items that I want to talk about in particular are slaves and gold. African slaves would very quickly become an important commodity in Portugal. I should note that slavery was a common practice throughout Europe and the Mediterranean. However, the church frowned on Christians enslaving other Christians. Thus, many slaves were brought from North Africa or the Middle East or Eastern Europe. These slaves could, if they escaped, oftentimes blend in with the population and even get a ship back to their homeland. This kind of thing was almost impossible for an African slave. Their homes were thousands of miles away and impossible to reach, and the ability of a runaway black slave to blend in anywhere was immensely difficult. Add in the fact that most of these slaves weren't Christians, and it made them highly valued in Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. The Portuguese quickly found that trading slaves was often the easiest way to make some money on an expedition. One horse could be traded for upwards of 10 to 15 African slaves. We will talk a bit more about this at the end of the episode, but we can't neglect to remind ourselves that these voyages by Henry's captains, which happened with his full support, are the roots of the African slave trade to the Americas. The work done in the 1440s and 1450s is going to build the network that will fuel the slave boom for 400 years. Now, aside from slaves, I do want to mention the gold trade. Gold was always the thing that the Portuguese loved most. And they were getting it, but not in huge quantities, at least not yet. The really big gold-producing areas are further down the coast. But they were still getting gold, so much so that Portugal would produce their first gold coins in 1452. Now, with all of this, I want to mention the effect that the Portuguese expeditions had on the African economies, and in particular, North Africa. The Portuguese end-run of the Saharan caravan routes would have a devastating economic effect on North Africa. Ports such as Tangier and Tunis would suffer terribly, while Portugal would make a lot of money in the process. So the year is 1450. The Portuguese are moving down the coast and building outposts. But I want to pause this and talk a bit about the maritime innovations of the Portuguese, in particular the caravel, because it's so important to the growth of ocean-going exploration. 
Now, we have talked a bit about the ships of the Portuguese and hinted at the innovations that were taking place, and it's important to understand that these developments happened over decades. But the final product that we will call the Caravel will really come to fruition around 1450. So let's talk a bit about European ships. The ships of the era were originally built for sailing along the coast and in the Mediterranean, which is calm compared to the ocean. These vessels were usually single-masted, with one square sail, and often used rowers. They were designed for commerce. Powerful winds, shoals, and ocean currents could easily overwhelm their capabilities. Henry and other Portuguese mariners had seen designs in reports of Arab ships that employed multiple masts and lateen sails. We mentioned lateen sails before, and I want to explain what that means. Lateen sails are triangular, and the cool thing about them is that they can be adjusted so that the ship could move forward despite sailing into the wind. This is called tacking and beating, with a ship using a zigzag course to actually move forward. I am not a sailor, so I'm just going to leave the explanation at that, but know that it works. So, the caravel had multiple masts and sails. The ships were not big, usually 40 to 60 feet in length, a capacity of 40 to 70 tons, and a crew of roughly 20 to 40. They often had cannons on them, but their firepower was limited. All of this would make the caravel light, quick, fast, and very maneuverable, and more manageable, especially in rough and unpredictable waters. And their shallow draft allowed them to go up rivers and sail closer to the shore. All of this would be especially critical as Portuguese mariners ventured into the Atlantic Ocean and down the African coast. Now, there are limitations of the caravel, most importantly, the size. They were small and thus could not carry much cargo. No matter, by the end of the 1400s, the Portuguese were the undisputed naval champions of Europe. No one could match their fleet or their trade network that they had built on the back of the caravel. By around 1500, the caravel would be followed, and in a lot of ways superseded, by other larger ships, most designed with the same fundamentals as the caravel. This included the Carrick. However, the caravel would continue to be built and used throughout the Age of Discovery, and be a key element in the Portuguese and Spanish fleets of the era, as well as other nations such as France and England, as they dipped their toes into the world of exploration. In the end, no ship contributed to the explosion of exploration in the 15th century more than the caravel. You combine the caravel with the Volta du Mar, which we discussed last time, along with the experience of exploring the African coast, and you have Portugal emerge as the greatest maritime nation in Europe. So I think that is it for the innovations part of the episode. I want to move on to the 1450s, the last decade of Henry's life, and talk about the explorations that happened during this time. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, regarding exploration, Henry and his captains would continue to push further south and make some cool finds. And for that, I want to talk a bit about a man named Alvis Catamosto, a Venetian trader and explorer who would sail for Henry. Catamosto would come to Portugal in 1455 at the age of 23. He would get swept up in the excitement of what Henry was doing. He said he was, quote, inflamed with the desire of visiting these newly discovered regions, end quote. 
So Catamosta would sign up with Henry and head toward Guinea. He traded along the way, dealing horses for approximately 100 slaves. He did not immediately return to Portugal, but continued down the African coast. In doing this, he would encounter another Portuguese caravel, this under the command of Antonio to Usa de Mare, a Genoese captain also sailing for Henry. I probably just butchered that guy's name, but close enough. The two would continue south together and become the first recorded Europeans to reach the Gambia River. This was a major waterway into the interior of Africa, and the two men headed up the Gambia to explore. However, they did not get far, as the native Mandinka people were hostile toward them, believing them to be cannibals. Catamosto and Yusa de Mare would thus withdraw and return to Portugal. I want to mention that major rivers were really important finds for the Portuguese. Rivers meant people and commerce, and a way into the interior of the continent. In fact, one of the greatest dreams of African explorers for hundreds of years was to find a waterway across the continent. Such a waterway would open up a trade route to the fabled Far East. So Catamosto and Yusa de Mare, along with a third Portuguese captain, whose name we do not know, would sail back to the region in 1456 with orders from Henry to further explore the Gambia River. By the way, Henry used anyone who'd work for him, not just Portuguese captains. As we have seen, there are Venetians and Genoans leading expeditions. So these three ships would head south, but when rounding Cape Verde, they would get caught in a storm and be swept west. The storms would last for several days and take the ships more than 300 miles out into the ocean, and here the explorers would sight several islands. These were the Cape Verde Islands. The Cape Verde archipelago consists of 10 volcanic islands, although Catamosto and Yusa de Mare only saw four of them. These islands were uninhabited at the time and were thus not much of interest to the explorers. After a cursory inspection, they would head back toward Africa and the Gambia River. By the way, the Cape Verde Islands would be settled by Portugal, but not until shortly after Henry's death. The islands would thrive in the 1500s as they were positioned strategically on the great trade routes between Africa, Europe, Asia, and the New World. The islands would also become a key player in the transatlantic slave trade for hundreds of years. So Catamosto and Yusa de Mare and our unnamed Portuguese captain would return to the Gambia River. Now, last time, the Portuguese had been met by fierce opposition from the Mandinka people. However, this time, the natives were open to negotiations. The Portuguese would typically invite some natives aboard their ships, show off their cool stuff, and then send the visitors off with a bunch of gifts. The natives would then bring this stuff to their bosses, who in turn would come back and treat with the Portuguese. It was a tried and true process, done for thousands of years in just about every place in the world. In this fashion, the three caravels would work their way up the river about 60 miles. While there were no large amounts of gold to be found, they did acquire a highly valued musk, which was greatly desired by European perfumers, as well as some exotic animals. The ships would be forced to head back to the coast when malaria broke out. Once back to the ocean, the disease was generally not an issue. The three ships would then continue down the coast, reaching Cape Hoshu, which is the modern-day border of Senegal and Guinea-Bissau. On the way, they came upon the mouth of another large river, the Casamance, but did not sail up it. The fleet would eventually reach the mouth of the Geba River, which is in Guinea-Bissau. Their native translators could not communicate with the people they encountered, so the ships did not venture up the river. Catamosta and Yuzumadari would then go on to check out the Bissagos, or Bissau Islands, a group of 88 islands not far off the coast of Guinea-Bissau. Many of these islands were populated, but without a translator, trade opportunities were limited. Thus, at this point, the fleet would return to Portugal. So it was now the mid-1450s, and we are done with Catamosto and Yusa de Mare. But there are two other captains of Henry's that I do want to briefly mention. The first is Diogo Gomes. 
Gomes was a Portuguese explorer who, in 1456 or 1457, was sent south by Henry to check out the recently discovered Gambia River. Gomes would go there and sail up the river 250 miles and reach the important market town of Cantor, a center of gold trade. Here, Gomes would hear the stories of the gold mines of the region and the legendary city of Timbuktu. He would also gain important information about the region's geography and economy, as well as the Saharan caravan network. The second of the captains I want to mention is Pedro de Sintra, who would sail for Portugal in either 1460 or 1462. Sintra would push roughly 500 miles further south than any of Henry's captains, reaching modern-day Sierra Leone, and perhaps getting as far as what is now Liberia. And that, my friends, is where we will conclude the explorations of Henry and his captains. In Henry's life, they pushed approximately 1,600 miles, or 2,600 kilometers, past Cape Bojador, and opened up an entire new world to Europe. So, with Henry's explorations concluded, I have a few things I want to talk about regarding the aging prince. The first is about Henry's belief in Prester John, the legendary Christian king no one could find. Henry never gave up hope that he could discover Prester John's realm. All of his captains had orders to inquire about the mythical kingdom. Some would come back to Portugal with stories from the native peoples of great kingdoms that were located up this or that river. When that happened, it made many people, including Henry, speculate that the great kingdom mentioned was Prester John's realm. I want to note that this sort of thing would persist even after Henry's death. Diogo Cao, who came across the Congo River in the mid-1480s, thought that the Congo would lead to Prester John's kingdom, and the Portuguese monarch at the time, King John II, would order all his captains to be on the lookout for signs of Prester John. Of course, Prester John was never going to be found, but that didn't stop the Portuguese from trying. Now, the second thing I want to add about Henry's life is with regards to his obsession with the Canary Islands, which we talked about in the first episode of this series. Throughout his life, Henry tried, but failed, to get the Canaries from the Spanish. I'll tell you a few of the ways he tried to do this, but a reminder, the Canaries were eight populated islands, but the Spanish had not settled all of them at this time. Thus, one way that Henry tried to claim the Canaries was to send settlers and military personnel to the unoccupied islands to try and establish a presence. Another thing that he did was to literally bribe local Spanish officials to have them hand over a location and Henry would even try and buy the islands outright from Spain. All of this would, for the most part, fail, and any successes were fleeting. Henry would spend a lot of resources on this all, but in the end, it would be futile. For years after Henry's death, Portugal would put a claim on the islands, but they would never oust the Spanish. Portuguese interest in the Canaries would officially end with the 1479 Treaty of Alcacovas, where they recognized Spain's claim to the islands. So now I have one final item that I want to talk about regarding Henry before he meets his inevitable end, and that was a Portuguese military venture that emerged in the 1450s. In 1453, the city of Constantinople, the gateway between the East and the West, would fall to the Ottoman Empire. This would cause a big freakout in Europe at the threat of Islam and a surge of Christian fervor. The Pope even called for a crusade against the Islamic invaders. Now Henry, in his youth, would have loved this, but he was older and wiser and approached the idea with caution. However, young King Afonso V, who was in his early 20s, jumped at the idea of glory and riches, as well as punching Islam in the nose. Afonso promised the Pope 12,000 men in the Portuguese navy for the venture, and he volunteered to lead the whole thing himself. Well, the enthusiasm amongst the other monarchs of Europe for a war against Islam did not match Afonso's fervor, and thus the crusade against the Ottoman Turks would be downgraded, the king settling for a military campaign against the Muslims in North Africa. 
The initial target would be Tangier, the city where Henry had been trounced 20 years earlier. However, Prince Henry and other Portuguese advisors would steer the king's focus toward the smaller port of Alcazar Saguer, not far from Tangier. In 1458, the port would be captured after the Portuguese overwhelmed the city in a two-day battle. However, once the city was taken, there was little done to expand the campaign. The Portuguese would maintain control of the city and over the next few decades expand their influence in Morocco. However, like Ceuta, these areas would be a financial drain on the empire and eventually be abandoned in the 1500s. While Henry was an important figure in the 1458 Moroccan campaign, this was really not his deal. This was Afonso's war. However, it very much played into Henry's earlier desires of expanding Portuguese influence in Morocco and North Africa. And with that, it is time to bring an end to our subject. In his final years, Henry's influence in Portugal had waned a bit, but he was still immensely influential up to his death. Prince Henry of Portugal would die on November 14, 1460, at the age of 67. Henry had no wife or children, and thus his nephew Ferdinand was his sole heir. Now, I do want to make a few notes about things related to Henry that would come to fruition after his death. First, regarding the gold of Africa, Henry had always dreamed of finding all sorts of gold in the region, and he had, just not that much. Well, the great gold mines of West Africa were there. They were just a little bit further down the coast in what is today Ghana. The Portuguese would eventually reach these areas, but not in Henry's lifetime. Second, regarding exploration, a lot of it would come to a halt after Henry's death. The Portuguese crown was happy to exploit the areas that had been found, but domestic issues would occupy King Alfonso for the next couple of decades, and exploration down the African coast was minimal. A big reason for this was the growing conflict between Portugal and Castile. This would lead to war in the 1470s, and would finally be put to rest with the Treaty of Alcacoves in 1479. I have described the Treaty of Alcacoves as a naval victory for Portugal, but a land victory for Spain. The treaty basically ended Portugal's territorial ambitions in Europe, as well as their claims on the Canary Islands, but it would give them a monopoly on trade down the African coast and eventually to Asia. Alfonso's successor, King John II, would show renewed interest in exploration in the 1480s, which would lead to further expeditions down the African coast, led by men such as Diogo Cao and Bartolomeu Diaz. The latter would round the tip of Africa in 1488, and a decade later, Vasco da Gama would sail to India and open up one of the most lucrative trade routes in history. And with those notes complete, it's time to detail the legacy of Prince Henry. I want to start out by saying that Henry's legacy is almost strictly related to the work done by his captains exploring Africa and the Atlantic. That said, at a very high level, he encouraged and nurtured this idea that Portugal was a major power in Europe. To many, in the early 1400s, Portugal was a sort of backwater afterthought of a territory, and no matter whether you agree with Henry's decisions over his life, he always was looking to raise the profile of his homeland. And in all honesty, he succeeded. No, he was not perfect, and he made some poor decisions in his time, but the wealth and prestige and respect he helped bring to Portugal was undeniable. So with regards to exploration, here's a list of the accomplishments he can put in his portfolio. First, there was the discovery and colonization of the Madeira Islands, the Azores, and the Cape Verde Islands. The Madeira Islands would prove to be immensely valuable, as they would, by 1500, become the top producer of sugar in the world. All of these islands will be important centers of trade and maritime activity over the next few centuries, especially with the discovery of the New World. Second, there was the circumnavigation of the Saharan trade caravan routes. This would hamstring the Moorish kingdoms of North Africa and bring wealth to Portugal. Third, there were naval innovations. 
The two I'll specifically mention are the discovery of the Volta du Mar and the development of the Caravel. The former brought a key understanding of how ocean winds and currents operated all over the world, a critical element to the age of sail. The latter, the Caravel, revolutionized oceanic exploration. Without the Caravel, it's much, much more difficult to cross the great oceans and even navigate the coastal waters of Africa. And all of these innovations will play a role in the explosion of exploration throughout the world in the 16th century. Fourth was trade. African trade would result in an influx of gold and the growth of the slave trade. But the explorations of Henry and his captains would set the table for further expeditions down the African continent and eventually to Asia. This will make Portugal a major world power. None of that happens without Henry. Fifth, there was Africa, getting past Cape Bojador, beyond the Sahara Desert, and reaching down the African coast 2,500 miles or 4,000 kilometers. That opened up worlds that no one had ever imagined. All of these things will result in the increased wealth and power of Portugal, as it would, for a time, become the greatest maritime nation in Europe. And that wraps up the exploration accomplishments of Henry. Next, I want to make a few final observations about the Portuguese prince, plus examine how history has viewed the man. The first thing I want to mention is that historically, Henry was put on a pedestal by scholars. He was a warrior and a saint and a visionary. This sort of narrative was heavily played up in Portugal, who embraced Henry, even to this day, as one of the nation's great heroes. I mean, he represents the glory days of the Portuguese empire. It's hard not to want to embrace that image. Henry would do lots of big things, but he was no saint and he was far from perfect. His military accomplishments were limited, and he never established a school for mariners. But he did do so much. As I talked about in the first episode, he never passed on an opportunity. His encouragement of exploration and innovation would have enormous long-term impacts on the entire world. Now, I do want to reiterate that Henry was not called the navigator in his life. In fact, this moniker would be given to him by two German scholars, Heinrich Schiefer and Gustav de Vere in the 19th century. It would later get picked up and popularized by other historians until it is how much of the world remembers the man. The second thing I want to mention about Henry is his relationship to the slave trade. As we have talked about, slavery was a common thing in Europe during his life, but the work he and his captains did would set the stage for the transatlantic slave trade over the next 400 years. And the way the Portuguese operated in Africa would be copied by the Spanish in the New World, and that's not a good thing. It meant the enslavement and exploitation of millions of native peoples. This is not one of those things we like to talk about with regards to explorers and rulers such as Henry, but it is a dark part of the reality of things, which I think is important to acknowledge. So before wrapping up, I want to say that while this series is coming to a close, we are not quite done with Henry the Navigator. And that is because for my next episode, I am going to cover the life and voyages of Alvis Catamosto, the Venetian mariner who sailed for Henry in the 1450s. I'm going to do this because Catamosto wrote down an account of his journeys, and I think they offer a unique insight into the Portuguese expeditions of the 1400s. So many times, all we have is the names and dates of these guys, but Catamosto's records provide us with a lot more. Think of it as an addendum to Henry's series. This will be a single episode show, and will be the next episode on the Explorers podcast. So that is it for the life of Henry the Navigator. I have to say that I find it somewhat weird to have to debunk a lot of myths surrounding Henry, yet still conclude that he was one of the most important people of the 15th century. No one is more important to kickstarting the Age of Discovery than Henry. It really begins with him. The explorations, the maritime innovations, it's groundbreaking stuff, and it will be the catalyst for the rediscovery of the New World, 
the opening of the lucrative Asian trade routes, and the emergence of Portugal as the greatest European naval power of the era. So there you go, the life of Prince Henry of Portugal, aka Henry the Navigator. I hope you've enjoyed this series. And don't forget, we will talk about the voyages of one of Henry's captains, Alvice Catamosto, in our next episode. So come back for that. Thanks to everyone for coming along on this ride. I appreciate all the support you provide for the podcast. Take care, and I will see you next time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.